What is up, Zach? Howdy doody. Episode 140. You know, so uh, consistency is the key to, to a lot of these things. I feel like we've, we've talked about this statistic at some point, but from a podcast perspective, most people don't get to episode seven and they don't get to episode 25. Was the next num number 100? Is that what it was? That they don't get I, well, to? I mean, well, at least for us, it was a big milestone once we hit 100. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's interesting how people will want something this time of year really bad. You know, they have good intentions, but the consistency aspect of it is, it is the key. So yeah. episode 140 for the four show. Yeah. I, you it's, know, it's, it's interesting. I, I talked to, uh, I was able to catch up with producer Gavin, uh, oh. a couple last week, late last week. And uh, yeah, that was one of the things that he touched on. He was like, man, you know, start wheel for four, just rolling. It's just, just consistency. I mean, just like you can count on it every Thursday at 11 Newsletters go on out every Tuesday morning. Uh, the content that we do with the shorts and the reels. I mean, it's just it's just consistency. So uh, I, I there's also that. a brand aspect to that where yeah. people know when to tune into something. And it's like, OK, like, OK, you know, Monday Night Football. It's eight o'clock on Mondays during football season. You can watch the Today Show every morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You, know, you can watch your WWE Monday Night Raw every Monday at eight o'clock p.m. <laughs> you know, but it's but there it's it's you are also training your customer, your audience to tune in and watch that thing. And I think people miss out on free branding, if if you will. Yeah. So we'll see. With that being said, we're delighted to bring on today's guest, Trisha Dunlap of Dunlap Law. So. When you decided to name the business, oh why, my did goodness. The way, why did you brand it the way that you did? So um, you may or may not be aware, law firm branding would probably win a prize for the least creative branding ever on the face of the earth. I mean, I didn't say it. it. I didn't yeah, say you it. You can. It's okay. More, more so than, uh, than accountants. An accounting firm? Oh, uh, I'd I'd say it's probably neck and neck. You know, yeah, it's right usually like three or four last names put together in the most oh obscure my. way. Yes, isn't it terrible? Right, and and some of the last names are like, how do I spell that? You know, I don't even remember. It's so anyway. Um, I actually because I tend to be a little unorthodox. Um, <laughs> we actually just launched a new website, which we're gonna now have to make some changes to it because it's not quite SEO perfect. But anyway. I tend to be a little unorthodox and I really tried to do something more creative than Dunlap law. And it, it just, it just kept coming back to Dunlap law. So it is something we're going to revisit though, because the brand that I'm building is, is much bigger than that. So anyway, it was a start. <laughs> well, yeah, you, and you have to start somewhere, but it seems like uh, how big is your team? You, it looked like you have uh, we now have five website. attorneys. Five attorneys, a paralegal, a practice manager, and uh, an intake coordinator. So, um, you know, we, we got eight total at this point, and I'm actually getting ready to hire. I'm looking for two more attorneys. So uh, if there are any business, corporate, transactional attorneys listening to this, uh, this podcast, and what I say feels right to you, then you should get in touch. <laughs> what, is the, what is the reasoning behind 
everyone naming it their last name or some form of name that is is tied to you know their 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 person because it's it's interesting because all i would think the majority of the businesses that you guys work with aren't that way yeah but then you guys are that way but you're not a single uh a a single unit practice either i don't know what the correct terminology is but like you know you you're you're at eight teammates now you know who knows in a couple years you might be at 80 does Mm -hmm. the name make sense at that point especially because a lot of law firms the partnership aspect of that is where others get a piece of the pie and then then it's not their name and so it's it's an interesting dynamic that so many do that but then end up having so many others attached to it that aren't their last name well you know as you're talking about this zach it's almost like the accountants and the lawyers like that is part of the the, it's the anti-branding is be almost become the branding so now when you see a company with just some last names you you got a 50 50 shot is it is it an accounting firm or is it a law firm it's true you know and so why is it like that it's tradition you know law is one of the most conventional, traditional business models out there. And, you know, I'd say accounting is probably similar, but I'm a lawyer, so I'm gonna focus on law. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I'm actually pretty passionate about um, disrupting. Um, and so I'm actually beginning to work on what the brand is going to be in coming years. In part because as a businesswoman, as a CEO, I'm also looking toward, you know, my own potential exit. And that will be uh, easier and perhaps at a higher value if I have a brand that, you know, resonates beyond just my last name. You know, I'm building a business that's going to endure long beyond me. And so, you know, so the brand will probably be changing in the next couple of years. And we've already started working on that, but I'm not telling any stories yet. (laughs) about where that's going. And in terms of your uh, practice, you focus on the business side. Is it primarily uh, early stage small business startups or does it, do you grow with them as they grow and and mature? You, you, you stick with them. Um, Both, you know, we, we have um, one of our clients that I'm thinking of right now um, is a company with, probably 150 employees and it was started in the 1980s and the, the founder is still at the helm today. So, you know, certainly that's a long-term business with some pretty complex needs. And then we also have startups, you know, I was emailing this morning with someone who just started the nonprofit and we're advising them, um, help them get started and, and we'll advise them as they grow. So um, our mission is to serve small businesses and nonprofit organizations from founding, protect, helping them protect what they're building as they grow. And then, you know, if it's a for-profit business, selling it when they're ready. And so we um, cover most everything within the general counsel that those small business owners are going to need. You've you've brought up an exit twice now. So, and I wrote it down as a note, it's something I want to talk about. So we'll, we'll do it now. So I think a lot of businesses want some sort of exit mm-hmm. at some point in the future. And a lot of, and I'm going to, I'm going to use this word loosely financial advisors. So your actual financial advisors, your legal counsel, your accountants will all say you need to have an exit strategy uh, super early on. I tend to think that that is a really difficult thing to, to forecast super early on. And it's like, mm, like, 
I'm thinking about this thing 10 to 15 years from now, like you just realize that you are for sale and that when that day comes, it'll be good. But what, what are your just general thoughts on, on an exit strategy? When should someone, when, when should a business start to really think about that? Should they be building that into their you know plan of action or, or should they just kind of have a, a, a loose appetite to say, Hey, look, if someone calls, We'll take the call. What do you? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I would approach that actually from three different angles. Um, first, I would I distinguish between having a succession plan or exit strategy, whichever you want to call it, and having an emergency plan. Every business should have an emergency plan um, because emergencies happen. You know, we can't always foresee pandemics and things like that, but we can certainly foresee other events that can disrupt business operations could be as simple as, you know, the power's out for three days, for example, um, you know, and, and you don't want your business to be so badly hobbled by the power being out that, um, you know, everybody's scrambling to even figure out who to, who to talk to. Um, so it's good to have an emergency plan. That's, that's just part of good planning in general. Thinking about a succession plan, um, I mean, my advice to business owners is, you and, and I would also distinguish there are some people who start a business with the idea that they're creating a job for themselves. And those people need lawyers too. So we absolutely advise those folks. And they're not really into empire building. They're not really planning any kind of big exit. They want a job that gives them autonomy and freedom and a certain lifestyle. And that's what they're creating. And when they're finished and want to retire, they'll wind it down perfectly appropriate. And we can help with that. Alternatively, there are people who start businesses with a vision toward selling it someday. And those folks, I would recommend that you, from the day you start it, you have in the back of your mind, kind of like, what does the exit look like? Um, and as you hire, you think about that, right? The, the person that I'm about to hire to fill a spot on my team do they have some of the qualities of a CEO? Do I see that in them even early on? And, and if you haven't done it, sit down and make a list of the qualities of an SEO or, or a CEO rather. Um, and, you know, what does it take to be, be a CEO? What does it take to be my successor in this business? And then as the years roll by, if you just sort of consistently hold those ideas in the background, that. I think can begin to give you the facts you need to create an actual succession plan. Because quite frankly, one of the most successful types of succession plans is an internal one where somebody who has been in the business for a long time is now going to buy it from you, you know? Um, but, you know, that said, I mean, just to use my own firm as an example, I have fantastic attorneys but someone who's a fantastic attorney isn't necessarily a right fit to be a business owner, a CEO, right? So I think it's something every business owner who thinks about selling someday should be thinking about as the years go by. But I also think expecting to have clear answers is probably unrealistic. How much of that stuff would you uh, recommend being in a an operating agreement, or does anything even need to be a, uh, of that need to be in an operating agreement? If you are doing any kind of business enterprise with what I'll loosely term partners, in an LLC, owners are called members. 
So in the LLC context, they're called members. So if you have multiple members in your LLC, or if you're operating a corporation and you have shareholders, you absolutely need to have terms for an LLC that would be in the operating agreement. Um, you can put them in a separate buy-sell agreement, but we always lean toward the side of efficiency and the fewer documents, the better. So we put terms related to exit and how one member might leave and be bought out. We put that in the operating agreement. You absolutely have to have that. And they should be carefully thought out. They should be negotiated amongst the members with the advice of a lawyer. Um, this is, and I'll touch back on this in a second, but then let me shift to corporations. With corporations, you want to have a buy-sell agreement among the shareholders from the, from the get-go. You don't want to build out a business enterprise with folks where you don't have any clearly defined way to either redeem their shares or for them to transfer their shares that will absolutely lead to trouble. <laughs> Whether or not it lands you in court is a separate question. Um, although I've been there with clients as well. And that can be a really painful, a really painful thing. It's, it's akin to divorce, frankly, you know, because if you've done business with someone for years and you have that deep long-term relationship and now it's ruptured, it's, it's very painful and very expensive. Well, yeah, these are... <laughs> This is great because you're just queuing me up for the questions that I already want to ask. So okay, why are okay. lawyer why are lawyers so expensive? I mean, so uh, Tim and I primarily work with I would say companies with less than a hundred employees, right? Mm -hmm. You could call that a small business, you could call that a startup, whatever. And a lot of the money that they spend early on is in legal fees mm -hmm. or when they have to work with uh, some sort of legal team, and it just seems like that is paperwork that could be used other, uh, in other places. Um, but lawyers are very expensive, hundreds of dollars an hour uh, at, at a minimum. And, you know, they charge by the six minutes and yeah, uh, it, it just seems like lawyers are so expensive and why? Like it, it's just, it, it seems obnoxious. Like it's just what, what, what <laughs> makes them, what makes a lawyer, uh, charge so much money? Well, I mean, there are a couple things. Um, Sell Number yourself one. well here because you're going to you're, you're <laughs> yeah, watch yeah, yeah. that clip. Now, you know? <laughs> so first, let me start out by saying that the, the traditional model of high hourly rates and, you know, we need a $5,000 retainer or whatever um, that we're going to bill against. I find that to be equally frustrating. You know, I hear the frustration in your voice and I get it. And Dunlop Law is now a little over seven years old and I have seen the fruits of that traditional model and what it creates. And I'm not happy about it, which is why we literally just reinvented our business model with uh, the launching of our subscription plans for small businesses. So I'll touch on that more in a minute, but you know, there are a variety of reasons why legal fees are so high um, in part. And, and this will be a little bit of a defense of my profession, um, which I'm perfectly happy to criticize my profession. So, um, you know, here I'll give a little bit of defense of it. It's extremely expensive to become a lawyer and it's ex extremely expensive to um, pay the malpractice costs 
and um, and to cover a lot of the um, expenses that we have um, traditionally had in operating a law firm, right? Where it's brick and mortar, um, and you know you're hiring um, people out of law school who um, the market, quite frankly, commands that you pay them a fairly high salary, and so that has to trickle down through rates. So. It's very expensive to become a lawyer. And I went to law school at 40 for what it's worth and came out of law school at 43 in 2011 with a mortgage worth of student loans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's high risk and it's expensive. So that filters through our rates. The other reason why is because it's what the market has allowed, right? Um, There's been very little disruption to the traditional model of legal services. And so the traditional model has prevailed. Um, that's what I'm trying to reinvent. Um, I will say there's a a third restraint. Um, and this sometimes results in some jokes, but believe it or not, attorneys are subject to rather robust ethics rules. And those ethics rules can be, um, they can limit our ability to innovate our business model and bring down prices. So and that can be a whole separate show. So I don't want us to get into the weeds too much on that. But, um, you know, some of the al- other like alternative sources of income that some other professional services might be able to, you know, open up a line of revenue with, say, let's say somebody refers somebody, uh, a new client to an accounting firm or a financial services firm. They might be able to pay a referral fee to the person who referred. We can't do that as attorneys. You know, so so we have some constraints on our business model because of our ethics rules. And those ethics rules are important because they safeguard clients. You know, they safeguard um, and they lock in things like the confidentiality rule that requires attorneys to safeguard client confidence um, and the information you tell us. Um, and, And that that can, you know, limit some of our innovations. So that's why. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you can't argue if if the if the market commands it and it's acceptable. I mean, secure well, that the was, bag. I, that, right? was, that was a great line. Yeah, it, it's it's. People I mean, are we're, it. so why we're, why we're in a capitalist society, right? Sure. And so, <laughs> if I can charge four hundred dollars an hour, and people are paying four hundred dollars an hour, then I'm going to charge four hundred dollars an hour. Now, here's what I'll say, and and for better or for worse, this is just how I'm wired. Um, I, I, I came to law as a career switcher for one thing. So I came to law without some of the traditional, you know, we've always done it this way kind of perspective. Um, and I, you know, like, uh, changing things up. I like innovation. I, I enjoy, thinking of new ways to do things and new ways to deliver value. And so um, I've spent the last two years actually researching and developing the subscription plans that we've just rolled out. And, um, and I'm, I'm on the cusp of actually rolling out a fourth variety of subscription plan that will price us at $98 a month. So um, that one's going to be trickier. And that one, we actually have to make a, quite a bit of content in order to make that work. And that one also only works at scale. So there's some 
like business challenges around that model, which I call small business century. And it's intended for micro businesses, like the, you know, little, the, the solopreneurs, the side job hustlers, like those kind of folks, right? That's the $98 a month offering. The three subscriptions we just rolled out are at $298, $798, and $1498 a month. Um, and all of them include unlimited access to your primary mm -hmm. attorney, schedule a call with us during our normal business hours, drop us an email when something's on your mind. We want you to engage with us because that lets us be better lawyers for you. It lets us be proactive. Um, so that's what we're experimenting with. And it's a little scary. It's a little tricky. Um, it requires that we build long-term partnership with our clients and, Is and that they exercise some level of discernment on when and how they call us. <laughs> you used the word unlimited, so I, be careful. <laughs> well, you know, we, and we talked about this actually internally and, and we'll see in six months, I might say, well, that didn't work and we've got to modify it. Right. And of course our contract with our clients allows us to do that because I'm going to, you know, protect uh, the firm, uh, you know, with our contracts. But at any rate, our, our biggest frustration, and, and we talked about this earlier when we were talking about the hourly rate and that sort of thing. Our biggest frustration with the hourly rate model is that it creates a massive obstacle to clients picking up the phone. And yeah. so we even have long-term, I have a client who's been with me for more than a decade now who, you know, followed me from the big firm where I started. And even though we have a long history of trust, he still hesitates to pick up the phone and call me when something's going on in his business because he knows it's going to generate a bill. And he, how much is it going to be? I don't know. Right. And so that the obtuse pricing and the billable hour create obstacles to engagement that leave us in the dark. And what ends up happening is we have clients who, number one, they will negotiate deals without talking to us. And then they'll call us and say, this is the deal I negotiated. Now I need you to paper it. That makes me nuts because our real value is in the advice we give you, right? Like we do deals all the time and we can help you negotiate. Let us help you. We had a client who recently negotiated a deal without talking to us first and he gave away 20% equity in his business for $20,000. I, I just, um, and, and there's no ability for him to get rid of this equity partner, like wow. ever, even after he pays back the $20,000. And he came to us after he negotiated that and after he signed the contract. And I'm just was like, you've got to be kidding me, you know? Um, and it's, it's too late. And that sort of decision-making is the result of fear of an unpredictable legal bill. So the goal of the subscription plans is to create engagement. Now, do not call us just because someone was mean to you and you had a bad day and you need to vent, right? Call your best friend. <laughs> call uh, us when you like, need to. You seem like you can help with that stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be limits, right? Or we won't be profitable and we won't be here to serve people. So call us to weigh pros and cons. 
Call us to understand the risks and benefits of something that happened. Call us because you got a subpoena or a lawsuit or a cease and desist letter. Like those are reasons to call us, right? Calling us because somebody, you know, had a bad day is probably not the right time to call us. So there's, there's got to be some discernment. There's got to be some weighing of, you know, there's got to be mutual respect, you know, in, in the use of our, our time together. So is the, uh, the rollout of the subscription model, is that something that the market was dictating or is that something that you're like, uh, you know, I'm, that was your plan and an attempt to disrupt the legal system? Well, a little bit of both. So there are other law firms that are offering subscription plans. Um, oftentimes what we have found in our research is that those subscription plans are basically the old model on layaway. You know, a subscription plan will be, you know, for X dollars per month, you get Y number of hours of our time. Um, and what we wanted to do was, was break that link between time and, you know, what clients are paying. Um, so we went beyond that. And it's, and it's why we wanted to do unlimited access, you know, um, and, and the, the limits, quote unquote, on unlimited access is, you know, book a call with us during our regular business hours. If something's truly an emergency, that can be different, right? But, you know, don't just pick up the phone and call us and don't just call us because you had a bad day, like I said. But if you need to talk to us four times this month because, you know, the shit's hitting the fan or whatever, then we want to talk to you, you know? And when you go to build out a three-year strategy for your business, we want to be involved in that too. Because as you say, you know, goal number one over the next three years is for me to hire four new people. That is going to then trigger us to say, okay, hiring four new people is going to put you over 15 employees. And that means that certain Virginia laws are going to be triggered that are not currently, hmm. you know, a burden on you. And we need to get you ready to comply. Right. So like that's part of the goal of the unlimited access is to create that level of proactive engagement so that we can help you plan for the long term. And we can actually our hope is to break the situation where we are constantly reacting to clients problems because they hesitated to call. And I would think that 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 falls in line with uh, what is the cliche, a, an ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure or something. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I'm thinking of another client who went into business with a friend and they downloaded uh, a partnership agreement from a, a well-known uh, resource online. And then they edited it themselves and they signed it. And three years later, the trust had eroded and they didn't want to be in business together anymore but they had a valuable license from the state that neither one was willing to give up. It was a really tricky situation mm. and it cost us, it cost them a lot of money to unwind this Jackalooly partnership agreement that they had signed. I mean, it, it, it was, it was a hot mess and it cost a lot of money to fix it. We were able to fix it, but it would have, I mean, it would have cost us like a, it would have been like a thousand dollars to do it right in the beginning instead of the, I don't know, almost $5,000 it cost to fix it three years later. Hmm. So, but, and, and I don't, I don't blame small businesses for making those decisions under the traditional business model. That's totally rational, right? 
I'm going to do as much as I can DIY without calling that attorney because that attorney is expensive. That's why we had to reinvent how we show up because I just think it's broken, you know? So um, part of it for me is my own sense of mission in how I want to be in the world. Um, I was a teacher in my first career, history and government teacher. I went to law school at 40 after 20 years of wanting it. And um, I'm finally, you know, at 54, I'm finally building what I really believe in. And I'm going to do it according to my own sense of what I want to create in the world. And for me, that means access to lawyers for small business owners, because they are essential to our country. They are essential to our economy. They are essential to our democracy. And I read a study from last year that showed on average, small business owners have 10 legal problems every year. Sometimes they don't even recognize a legal problem as a legal problem. 52% of them get no help at all. And 20% of them suffered physical and mental health problems mm -hmm. because of the stress created by those legal problems. You know, they lost clients, they lost revenue, it generated lawsuits. Um, they had unhappy employees who were threatening. I mean, it just, anybody who's operated the business for more than a hot minute knows that legal problems arise. And when small businesses can't or feel like they can't afford an attorney, to me, that's an access to justice issue. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not interested in just running a career and building a career that's same, same, you know, I want to do it differently. I want to figure yeah. out how to show up differently. When you put those numbers in with some of the other data around businesses closing after a few years, mm -hmm. basically living paycheck to paycheck, even as a business owner, as a business, I mean, I think you can, you can connect the dots to say, well, of course they didn't call because they didn't have the money to do this yep. thing because it, it, it's a, it's a compounding effect of, of the business struggle. And I, it, it's, to me, it seems pretty obvious why those things, why you wouldn't be getting the phone calls in those kind of ways, because business wasn't doing well in the first place, mm -hmm. um, which is a completely different story or a completely yep. different problem uh, in, in that regard. Yeah. And you think about something, a, a small correction very early can have huge, huge impacts five, Absolutely. 10 years down the road. Absolutely. And, and even a simple thing, like I'll give you another example, because this is something else we see all the time. Um, let's say a business owner has built their business for um, 20 years. We actually had a client this year who was right exactly a, a fine example of this they've been building their business for 20 years and that was time to retire and they were ready to sell it and they had a buyer okay but back in the day when they started the business they had four partners and over time they bought out those partners but they never hired an attorney to structure those buyouts or to paper it and so fast forward to 2022 the documentation supporting this individual's ownership of the company, all it showed was that this individual owned 0.05% of the company. 
0.05. Some of the other, one of the other partners that he had bought out years before is now dead. Um, Two of the other partners, they'd had a bitter falling out and he did not want to call them and say, you know, I need you to sign this document showing that you gave up your shares because I paid you years ago. And there are other legal issues around that as well that I won't get into. But so here we are with a man who's ready to sell his business. And because he didn't, and again, to some degree, yes, he should have taken care of this, but to another, the traditional model disincentivized him from doing it right. He didn't have the records he needed to get through due diligence to show that he had the legal right to sell his business. And to me, that's a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm, I'm really interested, you had mentioned, uh, you had wrote, written down in uh, the notes that, what, that we look over uh, as government gotchas. I'm, I'm <laughs> curious, what are like the, the biggest government gotchas that, uh, that you find uh, that yourself and your firm addressing and, and helping business owners with? Well, um, and of course, you know, I'm using, uh, I'm using some slang terms. I'm using some vernacular because one of the things that's important to all of us at Dunlap Law is that we speak the language of our clients, right? We try to avoid jargon and we try to approach all of our work from how it feels and from the perspective of a client. So to me, a government gotcha is a situation where, you know, you, you may have done something wrong. You may have made a mistake in your business and that triggers some sort of government enforcement action. You know, maybe you let your workers' compensation policy lapse when you shouldn't have. Um, I had a client years ago, a professional services firm, that uh, part of their work was uploading plans into a government database for government authorities to review and and approve. And it turned out that some of his contractors were using documents that they, that other professionals not in that firm had prepared and uploading them as if it was their own. So like, that's a real problem. And the government authority, once it caught this, um, initiated an enforcement action that was actually um, very dangerous to our client. We were able to get through it um, and we were able to get through it with a minimal fine and, and basically probation. <laughs> and we made a lot of changes to his contracts with his contractors in order to protect him better. Um, so like those are two examples of things that can go wrong, um, but there are lots of ways that a business can get sideways to government enforcement authorities. You know, maybe you didn't um, pay your taxes when you should have. Um, so it, it's almost hard to say all the different uh, permutations of yeah. government enforcement actions, but they definitely happen and, and they can be business ending if they're not handled carefully. So we we're talking about this and I have a note that I want to bring back to it, but it, okay. so you're talking about lawyers in general, maybe uh, your bankers, anyone who could be a value at some point in your business. Uh, I would probably call those people white collar service providers, mm -hmm. the people who everyone thinks are really expensive. And I'm, you know, um, Hollywooding, Hollywoodificationing that by saying that you're expensive. So 
apologies for that. Uh, but those individuals, those groups, those businesses that you might need in the future, the best time to create a relationship with them is when you don't need them. 100%. Because yep. when you need them, they probably can't help you. Yep. Right. And so it, it's interesting that um, I deal with my lawyers on a, on a somewhat basis. I, I don't know, somewhat regular basis. And sometimes they charge me. Sometimes they don't. Maybe I shouldn't say that out loud, you know, but like, <laughs> it's like, but because I keep that relationship going, I think maybe there's a little bit of give and, give, it, give and take in there. And so I think a lot of people, if they start those relationships, and it doesn't have to be with a white collar service provider, it could be with anyone, right? right? The best time to create a new relationship with anyone is is now. And don't, mm -hmm. don't wait. The same thing is, is, is if you're uh, a teammate trying to get a job somewhere else. The, if you're trying to meet the new people at all these other places, guess what? Like, that's a lot harder if if you're starting today, instead of having that relationship with all these companies over the last five years, a decade or so. And so yep. um, as people are looking at their new year resolutions and all that shenanigans, create a lot more relationships. It'll do better for you. That's, that's, that's my. Uh, yeah. I, I uh, totally agree with that here. for what it's worth. And, and I will say particularly for long-term clients where, there's a high level of trust, you know, and, and honestly, I consider them my friends as well. Um, I, there are definitely times when, when I don't build conversations. I had a conversation yesterday with a, a long-term client and I didn't, I didn't build that, you know, but the traditional model leaves clients unsure, right? So um, we want to remove that uncertainty you know, I'm a business owner myself and um, I have found that having predictability in pricing has been really helpful to my ability to meet my business goals. So we're just trying to provide that, you know, in a profession that typically hasn't. I'm curious uh, in terms of startup mistakes, founder mistakes. What, what, what do you find the, the most important thing that someone, they want to start a business? What is the most important thing that they need to start or th at least think about or do day one? That um, You know, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier with um, your LLC operating agreement, or if you're running a corporation, then of course you've got your articles, your bylaws, your buy-sell agreements, that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's really important to get the foundation right, to get the structure right um, at the outset. And, and that includes um, papering it, right? And, and I'll circle back to the, that in a second and talk about kind of what you should be looking for in those documents. Um, but it also includes the structure of the deal as a whole, you know, and um, a good lawyer can really help you think about what might things look like in the future if someone wants to leave, you know, how much, um, you know, do we, do we want to set formula on how to value their membership or their shares? You know, do we want rules on, you know, when and how they leave? And for what it's worth, under Virginia law, the Virginia LLC Act, 
if the articles of organization or the operating agreement for an LLC, if neither of those documents expressly entitles a member to resign and leave the LLC, then they can't leave, which most people don't know. But if you think about it, like in Virginia, you could be married to someone for 60 something years and divorce them. But if you are a member of an LLC, unless the articles or the operating agreement entitle you to leave, you can't leave unless the other, you'd have to negotiate it at the time you want to go. Right. So it's about getting the foundation, right. Getting the terms, right. Being really thoughtful about that. And then when the documents are drafted, we emphasize at Dunlop law, we emphasize that we draft and advise using what's called plain language or plain English. And what that means is that um, we, we work very hard not to use words like heretofore and <laughs> whereas, and you know, um, notwithstanding the foregoing <laughs> and things like that. Our goal with our documents is that, the, to our thinking, the purpose of a document is that the parties to the contract or the parties to the document can come back a year from now when memories have faded and you don't, oh, I don't, how should we handle this issue that's arisen? Well, let's go read the contract. Let's go read the operating agreement or read our buy-sell agreement. It should be precisely and plainly worded so that you as a human, non-lawyer, quote, civilian human individual can read it and come away with a, a decent understanding of it. And here's what's really key the other parties have the same interpretation. Like that to me is the gold standard of a contract. If, if you read it and somebody else reads it and you come away with different interpretations, that's the fast track to court right there. <laughs> I so. read a contract yesterday and both sides of the party understood it and there was no negotiations either way. So I guess it did it right. So that was, that's good. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, it was done that's well. the same. And and you know, here's another note. And this, I'll give a a shout out to every contract drafting attorney who has ever lived. <laughs> contract drafting is extraordinarily difficult. It is um, an underappreciated skill. Taking a concept of a business deal and translating that into the level of English language precision that's required for a contract and making sure that there is truly only one interpretation. That's extremely difficult. And um, the, the attorneys who specialize in contract drafting and who hone that skill year after year after year, they are going back to the cost of legal, right? They're worth their weight in gold. And if you're doing a particularly complex deal you want an attorney who is really strong on contract drafting. That, that is not something that you want. Um, oh, for God's sake, don't download something off the internet and do it yourself. Just don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> All I'm thinking of, and like just the whole crypto space this year. I mean, what an oh. absolute disaster. I mean, I, I just, Wow. Well, and actually, you know, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but that whole FTX thing 
Yeah. Um, a friend of mine who's a bankruptcy attorney and she knows we do corporate work. Right. And um, she emailed me. She says, I was reading over the bankruptcy filing from FTX and a lot of the issues with FTX, the reason why they were allowed to ripen to the point where they destroyed the company and destroyed people's lives, quite frankly, is because they didn't have their corporate governance buttoned up at the beginning. They didn't have an active independent board of directors that was overseeing the conduct of officers and holding officers accountable. That simply didn't happen. And so, you know, that's another thing. When you're starting a company, you need to take the role of your board of directors and the role of your officers extremely seriously. And you need to understand fiduciary duties and yeah. what that means and, and how and you're so, going to so that. Your, your hot take on did, yeah. does SBF, parents, his parents are both attorneys. I mean, at some point, wouldn't you think that his parents would be like, hey, Sam, yeah, think we're, we're, we're talking really high dollars here. Let me just take a look at the operating agreement. Let's make sure that you got things buttoned up because this is getting pretty big. I just find it really, really hard to believe that I, I, it's like, how do things even make it to this level? I, don't, I, I just don't even understand. Yeah. Well, you know, I hear you on that. Although I will say, I, I don't know what kind of law his parents practice, but I will say this, Tim, <laughs> if you had an issue with your heart, you would not go to a pediatrician. So sure. if you are doing business or corporate work, you need a business or corporate attorney. So it's entirely possible. I mean, we have attorneys who are clients. You know, I have, I have, quite a few attorneys who are clients and they practice personal injury or family law, or, you know, they practice in an area that's not corporate or business. And, you know, they don't know corporate and business law. You know, it's a highly specialized knowledge that frankly we build, you know, I've been practicing law since 2010, really. I started practicing my third year of law school. Um, you know, so I've got 12 years of experience and, and I've a lot. Um, I have other members of my team who've been practicing for over 20 years, you know, so the level of their specialty knowledge in corporations, in nonprofits, and I mean, it's, it's very high. So it's, it's akin to going to a, a cardiologist when you have a heart trouble. Yeah, I just can't help but think that you'd be like, I may not specialize in this, but I know somebody that why don't you go talk to my friend uh, so and so we're playing tennis yeah. next weekend. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. It just it's crazy. You never know, you know, I mean, Gee, I don't know. I have two adult kids and they don't always listen to me. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> they should, uh, but they don't. <laughs> it'll be interesting how all that unfolds because that is oh, just fascinating. Yeah. I'd, I'd say he's probably got some prison time in his future if I had to venture a guess. I would so, agree. Yeah. As an attorney how, how do and a business owner, how, how do you market the firm how do you get new business how do you get people to see you how do you get how do you get those prospects that you want to to learn about you so the vast majority of our work comes from referrals and um we actually did an analysis of that recently and it was like over 89 percent came from referrals and you know that's either um professional service providers who know us and know our work or it's actual clients you know who are sending more clients our way um, and, and we take a lot of pride in that. You know, I started Dunlop Law in 2015 with, you know, very little capital, very 
little capital. Um, you might recall I mentioned I had a mortgage worth of student loans coming out of law school. So I've never had a huge budget for marketing. Um, and so, you know, our goal has always been to just do quality work at a reasonable price and be fair and focused on long-term relationship with our clients. And so that has resulted in, you know, a, a robust book of business for us. That said, we are pivoting uh, kind of as we speak. I think this is the fourth or fifth podcast that I've done uh, this year, um, or certainly in the last maybe 18 months. And one of the things that I am really, um, and, and I'm eager to be on more podcasts to talk about this, because part of our mission is to educate small business owners on how the law firm model is changing. You know, the, the traditional model that the minute a small business owner thinks I need an attorney, the image in their head of what that's going to look like, that traditional model is changing. Firms like Dunlop Law are at the vanguard of that change, um, but we're not the only one. And I want small business owners to understand what their relationship with an attorney can look like because of those changes. I want to educate people on what they should be asking for, you know, how to think about hiring an attorney, you know, um, how do you, how do you choose an attorney, right? Most people have never chosen an attorney, or if they did, they chose a divorce attorney because their marriage was ending or whatever. And that doesn't necessarily translate and in, translate into choosing a business attorney, you know? So we're, we're pivoting now into, you know, a focus on conversations like this where we can help people understand the value they can and should be getting from, from a law firm. With, with what did you say the number of referrals is the, the percentages? It's like, it was 88, 89%, something like that. And so we just rounded down a little bit to be conservative and All right. you know, so, so let's say it's 80, 85%. Let's say 80, 85% of your business is coming from referrals. Are you doing anything actively to, to tell that person, Hey, if you have a, client in mind or a person in mind because a lot of people talk about word of mouth a lot of people talk about referrals and things like that but it seems that they also neglect to tell individuals that there's a piece in there where they are actively trying to get someone to to provide that referral to them do you do anything like that or is it general now, now I'm I'm feeling vulnerable, Zach, because <laughs> well, that's, that's my job as a as as, yeah. a, as a questionnaire. <laughs> yeah. So you know, is this a business review? I don't know. <laughs> so um, the last year and a half to two years for me as the leader of Dunlop Law, I've been intensely focused on the research and development behind our subscription plans, and I've been very focused on building my team. Um, you know, it, at Two years ago, um, I had just hired my first full-time employee. So we've seen a lot of change in the last two years. Um, and that has captured a lot of my attention. And quite frankly, I have neglected to build any sort of deliberate, intentional outreach where, you know, I'm calling clients and saying, hey, we're looking to grow we just add these subscriptions or whatever. And, and is there anyone you can refer us to? Can you introduce us to three people? You know, which of course is the classic script. And I haven't been doing that. So the fact that we have the high referral rate that we have without any sort of like actual formal program 
is kind of nice. But what it tells me as a business owner is I'm not realizing the opportunity that's there. So clients, if you're hearing this, you're now on notice. You're going to be starting <laughs> to hear from me. <laughs> I now, you know, I've built the team. I, I have a fantastic team. I mean, I, I just can't even um, begin to, um, you know, fully articulate how grateful I am for, and so far it's all women, not, you know, by any design, it's just happened that way. And I just have um, the, the attorneys that I've hired, I've really focused on hiring attorneys who are not only high IQ, but also high EQ. Um, I want people who are going to be able to connect with their clients and who are going to be able to explain complex issues in a simple way. A lot of attorneys can't do that. So I have fantastic attorneys and then I have a fantastic leadership team on sort of the operations side. And now it's time to grow, right? So 2023 for me is going to be all about that kind of growth. So clients get ready. You're going to be hearing from me. Um, I'm going to be asking you for those referrals and we'll be oh, sorry. actively building. Sorry guys. This. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Blame it on Zach. Right. Yeah, I'm the reason. If, and for those that aren't aware, you're in Richmond, Virginia. Yes. In Richmond's, gosh, that's just growing at crazy rates right now as well. And the startup community is also. Yes. I would say it's very, it's, it's, it's more mature than ours down here in the Norfolk, Virginia beach area. Um, are you, are you ingrained with the uh, startup community there? Not as much as we need to be and not as much as we will be when, when uh, I check in with you guys in six months or a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's part of the intentional plan for this year. So, because you're right. Um, the startup community is very robust in Richmond and, and we have a really strong small business community as a whole. And in particular, and this is something else that I really love, um, I'm, I'm, very active in the Metropolitan Business League, um, which is a chamber of commerce type organization for women and minority owned businesses. And um, we have a lot of clients that are women and minority owned businesses. And that to me, I was a history teacher, right? I'm a, I'm a history nerd. And when I look at back at history and I look at people like Maggie Walker, you know, who started her business as a young woman in the late 1800s, basically right as the Jim Crow era was beginning in, in Virginia. And despite basically a resumption of slavery in all but name, she built her business and built her wealth and then used it to reinvest into the Black Wall Street that existed in Richmond, you know, for um, much of the 20th century. And so what I see in the Richmond business community that's really makes me happy, <clears throat> I see a level of development among um, Black entrepreneurs, among the um, Black community that really makes me happy because it tells me that Richmond is really moving into a renaissance um, that, will, that will increase the wealth of the black community as a whole. And so I, I love that we can be a small part of that and whatever, whatever that looks like. So yeah, our, our guest last week uh, was from black brand and uh, it's just, boy, they're just, they're doing such great things. I am always super fa fortunate, 
happy uh, whenever I'm asked to, to go in and, and work with them uh, and just give little talks. I mean, it just, they're doing really, really great things. Uh, super, super happy for them. Well, and it's part of um, one of the pieces that's connected for me in the last year or so. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years about how our democracy is at risk. And I reflect on that a lot because I was a history and government teacher, right? My first career was really meaningful to me. And, you know, now I'm a small business attorney. And, you know, what does that mean in the context of our democracy? And it hit me one day, um, small businesses fragment economic and social power, much the same way that democracy fragments political power, right? Like prior to the United States, prior to 1783, when our constitution was written and adopted, um, every nation on earth took political power and placed it in the hands of one person, a king. We were the first nation to adopt a formal constitution that fragmented political power across the people. I mean, granted, not all the people, there were a lot of flaws in that. And we, there's a lot that over our history, we've had to go back and redo, so to speak. And we still have a ways to go, no doubt. However, democracy fragments that political power. Small businesses fragment economic and social power. And to my thinking, when you look at power in society, it tends to fall into those three categories political, social, and economic. So for our democracy to be healthy, we have to have a healthy, thriving small business community. And to the extent that that small business community reflects our actual population, it will also help to correct many of the injustices that have been part of our history. So the stronger that small business minority community is in Richmond and elsewhere throughout our country, the faster we can address some of the inequities and some of the legal uh, legacies of discrimination and segregation and et cetera that exist. So to me, it, when, when that realization hit me, my first career and my second career knit together beautifully in that moment, because what we do at Dunlap Law is just as important as what I did in the high school classroom for 12 years. That's great, I love it. Yeah. And, you know, small business owners, you're part of that history. You know, you're part of the story of our nation that goes back to the early 1700s. You know, when, um, if you don't know Ben Franklin's life story, go read Ben Franklin's life story. It is absolutely fascinating. And he was one hell of an entrepreneur. So um, scrappy and resilient, creative, you know, uh, he's an inspiration to me. Maggie Walker is an inspiration to me. You know, if I'm having a hard day and if I'm starting to feel like, man, you know, can I do this? I go look at Maggie Walker, who, you know, did what she did with the boot of Jim Crow on her neck the whole way. I mean, Love it. Is, what do is I there have anything to we haven't talked about? Is, is there anything? <laughs> I've said this 150,000 times. <laughs> Is there anything you want to talk about today that we haven't talked about? Oh, I don't think so. I think we've kind of covered the ground. Yeah. Yes, we did our job, Tim. Good job. There you go. <laughs> right back at you, Zach. All right. Trish, it's I'm been excited an absolute... about the We are excited for your future as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks for um, 
notifying me of some of my history lessons that I didn't know about. So now I can go do a little bit more research on them. I don't know if you knew that, Tim, about no. Mr. Franklin, but um, I feel like yeah. I'm uh, a disgrace to entrepreneurship for not knowing that statistic about uh, Mr. Ben Franklin. But that the means that I get, to, uh, I, I get to do a little bit more research now on. So that's cool. So uh, Trish, appreciate your time and uh, look forward to uh, having that chat in six to 12 months again. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Trisha. Thanks for listening. Peace.